0: Welcome to the 4th Estate Podcast. In this episode, I talk to the sublime and recently Grammy-nominated Scott Blackwood, author of our new release, See How Small, a moving and transcendent look at the impact on the family, friends, lovers of three girls who were brutally murdered after closing time at the ice cream shop where they work. Based on a real case from Austin, Texas, in 1991, which is still unsolved, it is haunting. It is haunting but told in such beautifully fluid prose that it gets to the truth of trauma and grief more subtly and effectively than any true crime filler. One of the epigraphs is this, from Frank Commode, The Sense of an Ending. Thomas Aquinas invented a third order of duration distinct from time and eternity, which he called avum. It coexists with temporal events, at the moment of occurrence, being, as was said, like a stick in a river. Avum, you might say, is the time order of novels. This idea is central to How Mall, and listening to Scott talk about it is genuinely mind-opening. And as well as Avon, we discuss the soundtrack behind the book, potential film versions, and why it should be the next serial. I hope you enjoy. Well, congratulations uh, are in order. So you've now been named one of Amazon US and Amazon Canada's Book of the Months. Has any other ones emerged in the days since we last spoke?
1: Yeah, the, um, the no, no, no uh, major awards or anything like that. But just uh, some nice, some nice pieces uh, in the in the Tribune and Chicago Tribune, and uh, a really good interview. It's it's great when you have people who are great interviewers and uh, no nuanced questions. And um, so you know, this one guy just did an amazing interview, and I, and I was on the road and.
0: Awesome. So I guess it's kind of, see how small, um, while being utterly original has also got overtones of the lovely bones kind of mixed in with In Cold Blood, and I've also been thinking recently there's something um, of the Virgin suicide about it. Uh, were any of these intentional or were you, did you have any kind of major influences in terms of style uh, when you were writing it?
1: I think you know, I've always been interested in the community and the community's reaction. and I remember reading um a particular uh Light in August, uh, uh Faulkner's Light Light in August mm. and he has these breaks in the in the narrative which become essentially kind of the town and the rumors about Joe Christmas in the in the narrative. And uh, I remember reading that, just thinking, "Wow, he doesn't even care. He just shifts." Yeah. And because that's what's important at that point. And I think writers like Eugenides, you know, in *Written suicides, you know, he's he's riffing on that a bit too. He's just taking where the emotion is, you know, where's mm-hmm. the, impact, the reach for the characters, uh, or even in, in, you know the collective effect on a, a group of young boys, let's say. There's suicides and, and just how um how much inside our own heads we really are, and how much of the war was constructed through these kind of um, collaborations and fantasies
2: mm.
1: uh, and contradictory impulses that they have met so I had read that in the nineties um of course, and um it's it's certainly made me realize it could be done on you know, a larger scale.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, my, my previous book, We Agree to Meet Just Here, is told to at least half in the first person plural of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the collective voice of the neighborhood said, uh, you know, the direct influence maybe is more felt on that. Um, the use of, uh, you know, kind of extreme use is a point of view that people don't use much anymore. Yeah. But in stories about community, that's, that's really what you want. It makes you know its form and function. And um and then you know, reading something like um, and I had read Lovely Bones years years ago in the early whenever it came out two thousand one. Um but um you know, I think some of the comparisons are interesting but sort of incomplete because I was using this idea of the Avum, which comes into the uh into all my, bo- all my books, which is this kind of liminal space mm. that people speak from. Mm. Um, it's kind of this, uh, more or less, the unconscious space that might be between an experience of the temporal and the eternal, like we have in our dreams. Mm. Um, and so I was interested in capturing that as well. Um, and if you go back to my books, all the way back to my stories in, say, 98, in there as, uh, the space with Jim Jones and Odie Dodd talk mm-hmm. uh, the dead Jim Jones and Odie Dodd, who's the physician who stumbled across the Jonestown mm-hmm. um, suicides in Guyana and um, so you know there, there are elements that feed into this but um, uh, the collective being a, a big part of it um, and I've narrowed that down yeah. Uh, to the girls, originally, the collective voice um, was something that was going to play a bigger part and feel small um, I mean the voice of the town. but I felt I could capture that in other ways as, as time went on on, mm-hmm. it. and most importantly to uh, I thought that the girls would represent this collective. they died together, they would you know essentially they're kind of the every girls of the community and uh, people are projected onto them all their hopes and fears, and they seem to have that, that collective voice of the three of them seems really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of, third, the the, uh, um, you know, the amazing book, In Cold, In Cold Blood, um, gets out kind of not knowing, you know, and how that's a central part of the book, is, is kind of not knowing why, but just the inexplicableness of, of the crimes and um, this common sympathy that's built into that book that, you know, kind of investigating all the lives think uh, all that stuff floats floats through it that you mentioned um, you know uh, it's imprinted with all that and, and a lot of uh, I think a lot of American culture too uh, you know the, the kind of violence comes uh, come from Texas so
2: yeah.
1: we come by violence naturally
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and
1: there's a long history of uh, the, the Scotch-Irish which I'm um, Scotch-Irish and uh, settling and then you know uh, to, to violence, and yeah. um, and it's not coincidental that Austin itself has a long history of violence against Native Americans and, and uh, the Comanche raids and abducting people, you
2: know,
1: mm. because of things go back a long way, um, so there are intimations of that in there, too, you know, there's there's a lot about uh, abduction and the people being uh, flipped away and lost. Rough
0: voices in other words. yeah can you just um because i i guess it's something that um a lot of our readers and listeners in the uk won't be so familiar with this case this the yogurt shop murders um that see how small is is based on as you say you've got you know experiences where you grew up austin is kind of where you're from um and you now live in chicago so could you just yeah tell us a little bit about the background of that absolutely yeah harrowing crime
1: Yeah, I I was living off, I lived there for for 25 years, but in 1991, in December of 1991, uh, December 6th to be precise, uh, I was teaching at a a local high school for at-risk youth, um, and my wife at the time, my my first wife had just had uh, our oldest daughter, uh, Ellie, who was about two months old, and uh, I get the news when I get to to the high school that next morning that uh, there's been this horrific murder at, and I can't believe it, yogurt shop there in in the, in Austin, and that four girls had been killed uh, ages 13 to
2: 17.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, two of the girls had worked at the shop, and the other two were friends, who had showed up around closing time, apparently. Um... But uh, it was not only where they killed, but they, you know, it was a, a brutal rape, murder, and then setting fire to the, to the shop itself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, unfortunately, uh, what happened was, during that period of time, there were a lot of arson fires because of uh, fire insurance codes. were coming, There were loopholes in it, and so people were setting arson fires. Uh, pretty common to, to, for the money and uh, the first responders to the fire didn't realize there would be anyone in there in fact they expected they'd been to like 80 arson fires in the past few months and um, so they went in and just sprayed everything with water uh not expecting to find anything and um ended up washing away most of the evidence that would have been uh, gathered um you know, inadvertently they washed it away and, and so you know uh, i did uh, interview a firefighter many years later um that, that was the first person to find the girls and uh they were stacked as he said by cordwood and it was a horrific image in one of the states you know mm. traumatized him mm. and and um, and traumatized the people and, and these are these are hardened uh, firefighters who'd been in uh at least one of them had, had been in uh, Vietnam, and they'd seen, and, as had the, the lead investigator in the crime,
2: yeah.
1: uh, had seen had seen terrible things, and um, but said this was the worst thing he'd ever seen. You know, part, partly because of the ages, but um, just the shocking nature, of, and um, and then became you know this long manhunt uh, through the city that turned everything upside down. Now, un- unbeknownst to me uh, at the time, and, and I just remembered this recently, looking back at some notes, um, one of the boys who was taken in for early questioning actually went to the high school where I was teaching. Um, and I didn't I didn't realize that um, until just recently when I went back and I did some reporting on it in my notes. Um, but they couldn't find these guys. And, um, you know, these are the every girls of the community I mean they were in uh, Future Farmers of America. Um, Austin was a very kind of suburban esque city at the time. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, rural Austin is really close to the city. I mean, it's right there. You can be in fields in, sec- you know, in minutes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so they, they were, they were, uh, they danced, you know, Texas Two Step at the, the, you know, at the dances, they uh, had boyfriends. They stuck together. Um, they were, you know, they loved George Strait. They, they were, they were this, these kind of every girls, and uh, uh, so it was, it was really traumatic for the city because this wasn't supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. You know? And we've come to realize that it happens, of course, all over the place. I think of, you know, the elementary school in New York, the Newtown uh, situation, where inexplicably, there's you know, all these children killed. Them. You know, we in some ways we're, we're um, maybe a, a little numbed by all this, but uh, it was a real shock, and, and the police, uh, doing under a tremendous amount of pressure um, and really no evidence, began just bringing people in. And, uh, there were these people called the PIBs, people in black, which was like the early Goth uh, movement, right? Mm-hmm. It, they, they were seen by the Austin places satanic worship, weren it was just a you know it was a social fact and they were bringing these people in convinced that they' had committed the murders with no no evidence uh rumor spread like wildfire you know that that satanic worship was involved even though there was no no evidence of that. Mm. And, and so it became this witch hunt in the in the city uh, to pin this on some truly you know evil practitioner um and you know people were arrested people were um, detained for a long period of time without charges um and this went on for a long time. They at one point public found the perpetrators in mexico, in mexico city, uh these gang members these these uh, biker gangs, mm. which of course seems like such a cliche right? yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh was with the biker gang, of course, in Mexico of all time. Mm. Um, and you know the 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 uh, projection on the other. It was really strong. Anyone different, yeah, um, was going to be
0: suspect. And Similarly, and I guess um, in Cold Blood as well, that that you know really happens um, with Perry, really yeah, like identified being did slightly weird looking and and short and kind of you know at odds with with the rest of, of, of how the town appears. Right,
1: right, and and it's uh, you know it, it it really kind of tore the city apart because you had this demand for justice and foreclosure of some kind or, or some kind of resolution of the case
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um and people wrongly accused we there were uh, in the book i think I, I enlarged the number but i know for a fact that there were uh, there were uh, at least 57 confessions
0: oh,
1: wow. that's always amazed me that people Confess yeah. the thing. These weren't coerced confessions. These were just people calling you and confessing. To them. Yeah. And these weren't people, in, you know, they were interrogated to get the confession as people volunteered it. And um, they were, and in, in the book, there's a detail about this billboard sign that was put up. And I remember it vividly the four girls you would drive by on, on the highway, on the expressway, and, and see every day, these mm. four girls said who killed these girls and, and left a number, um, you know, for a tip line to call in. And there were 12 of these billboards all over the city for years. They were paid for anonymously, no one knew. Mm. Um, and, you know, the police promised the parents they would get these guns. And uh, eventually the case went really cold until 1999. Um, when they revisited some of the early suspects uh, that they they brought in for questioning, the the list, and there was this guy, Maurice Pierce, who was the student who was at Robbins High School where I taught. He'd been there that that semester when I was teaching there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, he was identified as having, in these early accounts, as having a 22 pistol that they'd found on him. Um, and apparently they tested the pistol, but the ballistics were off. And so it was just kind of odd thing. He's running around with the pistol. He's hanging out at the mall. Um, he's right near the yoga shop. Um, so, you know, maybe it hadn't been, they moved, moved away from him after it became clear that
0: he and his other
1: three friends, probably they were also the same age as the girls. They were like 16.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but they weren't really capable probably of organizing anything that this complicated or, or, and, and had no history of violent crime or anything like that. Mm. Anyway, they moved away from that, but they moved back on it partly, I think, because of the pressures and, uh, uh, by the police. It, uh, the police were having a gun to, to solve this. Um, and they found me. Uh, one of Robert Springsteen was living in West, uh, West Virginia, I believe, and they tracked it down and extradited him and I got him to confess, and uh, I've, I've read the confession uh, the interrogation, and, and I drew off that for some of, you know, I think, uh, you know, in some ways, Michael has elements of Michael in the book, Michael mm. Greer has elements of all these boys, you know, kind
2: mm. of composite
1: in some ways, but, um, but, and then completely unique in other ways, uh, because he's a, he has a long history in my fiction, and the whole Greer family does. But uh, the interrogation was really interesting, and, and kind of gets at maybe the heart of uh, the, the book in some ways. Is they, in the real, the, the real crime interrogation, they are somehow what you can see going on is they're able to convince, they're able to convince them that they did commit this crime, mm. and they're bringing up details and feeding them more or less, at various points, that it creates an image, and, and there's such pressure on the the person's being attended it, It's an astounding thing to see. You know, people don't understand how people uh, confess the things that they didn't do, but yeah. uh, you can see how it could happen psychologically. You want out of that room under any circumstance. Mm. If you've been there 14 hours, you're going to really... Yeah, they say you can leave, but not really.
0: Yeah, it's the monotony yeah. that kind of must break you down, must really, yeah, like break your very yeah. soul, soul and resolve.
1: So, so not only, you know, and so these these, these boys uh, are, are kind of rounded up, and they're in mid now, they're, they're, they're in their mid to late 20s at this point. Mm. And uh, they are um, rounded up and eventually prosecuted to them. Uh, go to Michael Scott and, and Robert Springsteen go to prison. Springsteen ended up on death row purely based on their confessions, which are very mm-hmm. suspect, uh, and became more so by another team. So they're in prison for almost 10 years. Um, and in 2009, um, DNA evidence came forth. That the, the DNA found in the girls, um, was not was, was two other men two other perpetrators DNA yeah. unknown and boys DNA was not found at all which contradicts what they supposedly confessed to yeah. so they're they're released but then but they're not exonerated yeah <laughs> which you know it's an, an insane about storytelling or stories that we tell ourselves and you really see that acted out and how strong storytelling Yeah, it's, it's titanic. And so I'm yeah. um, really trying to capture, um, and I think you can only capture it in fiction partly because um, it's just a, uh, you know, the, the, the real story is, is far too um, complex on the level and, and drawn down in a way that, that uh, and I don't think you can get behind, uh, I think their voices were lost. Um, I don't think you can get behind the, the kind of persona and the, the uh, accepted facts of the case without yeah. really fictionalizing it, and getting to um, the lost voices that are in there, mm. being the girls who became just victims, yeah. um, ultimately. And it's... And not real people, ultimately, because they're in the this, the boys who um, became perpetrators, in the minds of everyone and the story that
2: was
1: told, yeah. and so I think investing in getting beyond that to to, to some essence that was lost in all these cases and all the characters was, was the real goal. Mm-hmm.
0: It's interesting that you um, that you yourself kind of compare the what you know what it's based on um, to a Greek tragedy because one thing I was wondering is uh, if you ever felt a desire to kind of in being able to fictionalise it, was there, you ever tempted to bring it to a kind of cathartic closure and to have that moment where the case is solved and you have that moment of kind of release from the story? Or were you ever, did you ever think that that would be how you'd end it? Or did you always know that you'd leave it as the case is itself and and unsolved and still very, very much a shadow over this community?
1: yeah, I guess I was really interested in the question Partly, you know, and, and I start out with, with questions, and I think that's the thing, is, is, you know, what happens when you can't get closure, when you can't get, uh, as, as was the, uh, the real crime, you know, what happens uh, when you can't resolve, you can't piece together um, what really happened? Mm-hmm. And, and even if you could would it, would it matter, would we tell ourselves the story that that would, you know, give us a sense of, quote, closure, you know? Yeah. And, um, as a parent, I'm not sure that it would work that way.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and so part of me questioned that premise to begin with. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I was really interested to see how it played out. I, you know, I didn't go into it saying, oh, we will not, uh, we won't be able to solve this, but that wasn't the big question I really wanted to know. is like yeah. What happens to people who have to live with the uncertain, you know? Yeah. And um, that was, to me, the most interesting question. So, you know, without giving too much away, I think the book explores that more than it does the, um, the cause and effect relationship. And, you know, we think of plot as cause and effect, right? Yeah. The, there's another uh, an endless chain and I think that's part of what the characters come around to is that there's there's another way um that there's a there's a depth of experience and emotional connection that you have to um reestablish yeah and you know one of the early events in the book um is when the firefighter Jack Doody is um we, we get this, this sequence when he's in the uh, the uh, neonatal uh, icu ward at the hospital after his, his daughter sam was born um mm-hmm. it was a lengthy um uh, birth she's in the birth canal too mm-hmm. long and she's she's been put in this for observation and the, the icu ward with all these preemies as they call them mm-hmm. uh, premature babies who born um and they're have all these monitors on them and so forth. Like and at some point, he, he, there's a discussion about his, his encounter with a, a chaplain, who talks to him about, um, you know, he's mm-hmm. there in the hospital and talks to him about, um, you know, kind of the challenges that, that the parents face with these preemies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and he brings up uh, a man who's who'd had. Uh, um, well, I'm, I'm mixing together my own experience in the story itself, so sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me a little a bit about thing. your
0: personal connection to it too, while you're kind of, yeah. Yeah. As and, you explore, you
1: know, well, I was drawing off this idea or this experience that I'd had because my my oldest daughter Ellie also had to visit the um, the neonatal unit, and um, there was this story circulating about a. Uh, a man who had had an aneurysm and the um, blood, the artery essentially that was feeding his brain, you know, it kind of blown up. That's what mm-hmm. happens, right? Um, and um, they, didn't, they didn't think he was going to do very well, um, and the prognosis was pretty bad. And um, But a strange thing happened, and the, the capillaries uh, around this area began... Um, over time, over weeks, began to take on and find alternative routes for the blood, mm. like the body relearning how to to do this, almost like a, another consciousness at work, right? Mm. Um, and feeding the brain in a different way, another, just kind of a roundabout way, right? And in some ways, you know, that might be a metaphor for the novel itself, is that there are other there are other things going on, you know, there's, there's a depth of experience going on that we're not entirely aware of. Mm. All the time. And that maybe, uh, maybe, maybe it's the conjecture, maybe in the, in the story, a lot of maybes, but maybe there's another way uh, to connect with not only uh, this other side of ourselves, but uh, to each, each other. And I think, you know, Avum um, is that space between where the characters work out their own plots, their associational plots, not cause and effect plots. Mm. But I think the emotional arc of the story is, is really played out through, through that relationship. Um, the, as, as if the capillaries have enlarged and spread and are finding different ways to connect, but we can't really put our finger on just how.
0: I want to talk about the refrain a little bit uh, that the uh, title comes from and that see how small a thing it is that keeps us apart. And as a reader, that feels like it kind of lands fully formed. And I'm just wondering at what point that came to you, if it was kind of pieced together as you were writing or if it was something that you really kind of struck on quite early on in the process, because it's so powerful and it, it kind of echoes throughout throughout the whole book.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's funny, um, I, I, was, I was amazed that a uh, uh, an Australian reviewer had clearly done a lot of research and realized that that phrase actually appears and We Agreed to Meet Just Here. In another context, mm. um, I was speaking about the collective voice of the neighborhood earlier, and, and it appears in that voice, and We Agreed to Meet Just Here, and uh, see how small a thing it is that keeps us apart um is the kind of thematic um unity through all all of my books. Mm. Um so it's, it's brought back in a different context here, um in in kind of like, not really that different, it's associational again. Something that you might hear in a dream is the kind of thinking I, I had that we're all kind of sharing this collective consciousness in some ways. Mm. And um, and it's floating through it, and and the girls are a part of that. The, the the dead girls who are, um, you know, their essence kind of participates that, and, and their awareness of the nearness of the living and the thin thin um, membrane that separates the living and the dead. Mm. Um, and and the, the, it, it occurs at the point in the book when they are counting countering their their mother. Uh, as they say, one of our mothers, meaning it's not Meredith's mother, but it's Zadie uh, and Elizabeth's mother, who is uh, kind of representative of the, the grief that parents would suffer. I think. Yeah. She's she's in the in the laundry room and she's matching socks and and folding clothes, and uh, they imagine um, that she also is bound like they were. Um, in, in the book mm. and in the, in the actual crimes, the girls were bound with uh, their panties and bras. And they were sh- stripped and and bound, and um, and they imagine their mother in the same state, essentially on the floor, watching the the uh, clothes revolve in the dryer, and her life is revolving now just around a you know singular point, or mm. you know around the same planet all the time, which is the loss she suffered, and and that's when, you know, this comes to the girls. They imagine themselves essentially kind of particles of light and, um, and you know, just kind of the gap between, and, and that it's, in some ways, it's, it's you know, you, you can both participate in someone's life and, then, and be separate from it, and, and they kind of imagine themselves somehow Along with their mother, closing that, that mm-hmm. gap. I think it's at least one of their wishes, and their other wish is to 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 move on. You know, in some ways, like the particles
2: mm-hmm. to,
1: uh, in the passage. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important part of the book, and and maybe partly tied to, um, you know, this larger truth that trying to hit on about. Um. Inner, you know the interconnectedness
0: of things mm-hmm. um, and um, and the, the the illusion of disconnection you know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there's this amazing playlist uh spotify playlist that you compiled uh, as you were writing it um and what struck me just listening through i think we're going to put a link to this on on our website because it's brilliant and it's always such a such an insight into the writing process, and obviously, music is so incredibly personal that to be able to have that connection with you know the author when they're writing something is, is just brilliant. Um, and it's yeah, it's a beautiful, glad well, you
1: liked it. Yeah, it's beautiful. I didn't know anyone would relate to yeah, it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it, I mean, what struck me was that it's actually many of the songs are quite uplifting, um, in a way. Um, I don't know if that was something that struck you or just in the lyrics or. Or the melodies, or something. There's. I was kind of expecting quite a lot of minor chords, um, but it was uh, a yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, I I think. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a, there's a strong push towards acceptance and, and a kind of transcendence in the book, mm. and and being a different kind of connection. Mm. You know, um, to you know, a, a transcending. Uh, grief and and uh, separateness, you know. Mm. And so I wanted to to uh, to get get at that. And I, I'm glad you think that. Uh, <laughs> I remember when I was putting it together. going, well, if anyone's going to get this or, or get a, a feeling from it, mm. and, and uh, they're kind of, you know, some of them are older songs too. That uh, obviously I, I'm involved in uh, music projects. and Yeah. And, uh, But, of course, I was listening to them, uh, and uh, My Motherless Child Blues uh, is a a terrific song. Yeah. It's scratchy because it's so old and it's one of the Paramount
2: Mm. recordings.
1: Uh, But uh, it kind of gets at this this separation, and then some of the songs are, uh, you know, joyful. Yeah. uh, um, Sidney Bechet, it's, it's hard to write... Uh, It's hard for him to play anything that doesn't have joy somewhere in it. uh, uh, Louis Armstrong. um, um, And uh, yeah, so Billy Holiday. uh, To me, that that song says everything. (laughs) And if we're ever going to be uh, made for film or TV, I I think having different artists redo that, uh, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. uh, in
0: different forms would be a, <laughs> <It'd> be <laughs> a amazing. great way to go. So. I'd love it to be turned into a film. There's such a, an amazing visual quality about the book that I just think you know it's so both haunted and haunting, and I just think it would work so well. So, keeping my fingers crossed that the powers that be do decide to, to take up on the offer because I think it would work so beautifully. Yeah,
1: thanks. Yeah, we're
0: We're,
1: we're, trying. <laughs> we're trying. We'll see.
0: Um, and I, I feel like I can't. We can't have this conversation without kind of touching um, on serial.
1: Uh, you mentioned it. I, I was like, well, yeah, this is multiple mm. well, perspective. This change, like your story, changes over time. Yeah. And, um, and it it becomes a thing in itself, separate from the actual event.
2: Mm. Right?
1: And uh, it's just uh, you know. Amazingly engrossing and mm. um, it, it it touched off, of, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of things in my head. Yeah. Uh, and supposedly it has also been pitched. See uh, small and and in its attendance, uh, kind of true crime aspect has been pitched to mm.
0: the serial folks. But yeah, I did. I wondered if um, if anyone was going to put it forward for for the next serial of serial. I thought, because I, yeah, I was just so blown away. There are so many similarities, obviously, you know, besides the kind of more obvious ones, like the fact that they happened in the early 90s and in America, obviously. But um, there's something about the, the unsolved nature of it, but how that's played out on this community and how it lingers with everyone. And, yeah, exactly as you say, you know, Adnan is an example of someone who feels like they have to confess because that's just... The position that they're in. I feel like there's uh, something in the two crimes that's just so unspeakably random and you just can't quite kind of put your finger on why that would have happened and how it happened as it did do. It's kind of like, just like blurted out like something completely... Yeah,
1: no, I know what you mean. It's... Uh... Yeah, the the contingent kind of nature of the whole thing that, that um, something conspired in one moment to mm. go horribly wrong, and you don't really. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's and, and and you know in some ways that's if we're going to talk about and no one really likes to talk about uh, the word evil mm. as it has often of the connotations that we think we already know right. Mm you know, um, Susan Neiman, this philosopher, talks a lot about uh, kind of redefining evil as just an act that that defies sentence-making. Mm. And that, um, you know, you can, that there's kind of banal evil and then there's, you know, acts that, it, it's hard to tell if they, they, they're purposefully doing this, in mm. a sense, or are they just is it something about the nature of the world that that events seem to be, you know, in some ways just deconstruct mm. uh, our human need for sense-making and uh, emotional sense-making as well. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, um, I think that's partly what sales Small kind of involved in, that, you know, the younger man is this kind of, um completely opaque figure yeah. we will never get to the bottom of in some ways
2: right?
1: mm-hmm. um, and um, and it represents that element in things that um, it's it's one intent if it has one it's to destroy sense making mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I think that's that's in there and, and it's so. You know, there's nothing necessarily planned about it. It just occurs. Mm. Um, and and uh, Susan Newman talks about uh, how that, you know, you you can look at human history and see it's, uh, these events uh, on large scale, you know, of course, occurring. Mm. Um, um, but um, on a smaller scale, I think there's something about the intimacy of it that uh, scares us more.
0: Yeah. In the large scale, yeah and uh do you feel like i mean American gothic as a as a genre is obviously something completely in and in and of itself um, and I, it's always fascinated me about how it's how it's evolved from you know the, the very very first books that were written on American soil through to Stephen king and now i, I you know I, i'm wondering if if you agree with me that this kind of serial and see how small these kind of new American gothic marks like a and yeah, a new wave a bit, I guess. I'm not sure if you would, you know, do, do you kind of see it like that as well? Yeah, it's it's interesting.
1: I, I think. I mean, you you mentioned like people being uh, drawn into this. I think it, it might be. I mean, it could be that. I mean, I hate to say it, but we're we're losing some faith. Also, in the ability of institutions to give us
2: mm-hmm. sense
1: of completion, you know, that that things are, are much more uh, random, and and the whole idea of of resolution is somewhat manufactured. Yeah, you know? and and we're buying into these stories, um, and have been for a long time. But um, it's kind of like buying into post-racial America. You know, mm-hmm. it's like really. Post racial? Did anyone watch Ferguson? Mm. I mean, yeah. you
2: know,
1: we're not we're not post racial. These things are, are deep deep within the culture. They yeah. just go underground, and mm. they just they they just beneath the surface, like an aquifer or something.
2: Right.
1: And mm. uh, and they erupt because in tongues. you know. It, uh, so I mean, I think there's something to that. Is that we don't. I think it maybe it shows a, a kind of sophistication on the part of people realizing that they do have, they carry with them these kind of inherited stories and there's something, um, there's something false in them. Mm. And, um, and it, it's affected our perception of events. And it, it's, uh, you know, something like cereal is really messing with that, you know, yeah. it's, it's, It's saying oh really you think you know the story he's been convicted you know you think you know the story um and you know oh there was there was you know someone who had seen uh you know had seen him place the body in in the back of the car Mm. you know um and but, but there are no or there are very few real facts i think that's the other thing is that a more sophisticated audience is come to understand on some level is that, you know, we're all constantly crafting stories.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's just which story you choose to tell yourself. Mm. Um and, and so I think there's a great interest in that. I wouldn't call it, call it, you know, meta-storytelling, but I think people, you know, narrative has really seeped into the culture in a way partly through the, maybe the renaissance
2: yeah.
1: of TV now. Um, and, uh, and hopefully reading <laughs> yeah absolutely but, uh, uh, but I think there's, there's something to that and, uh, and and it's really as you point out it's like it seems uh, for lack of a better word really uh, some, something kind of on fire in the culture yeah in the same way that dy- dystopian fictions are you know yeah i um, been watching the, the Hunger Games series uh, which I've never actually read but um, and show them to my nine-year-old, mm. and boy, she is totally identifying with with Katniss. You know, yeah. It's all about her reshaping a new world. You yeah. know, that's a, that's a big thing. So, so maybe it has some, you know, it's a kin to that.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. Um, on a slightly different note, uh, I want to congratulate you on your Grammy nomination. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> fingers Probably crossed, you've all next birthday. eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, can you tell me a little bit, just about the process of, you know, writing a completely different different kind of book, and with Jack White, I believe, which is, must have been amazing.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, the process was was long, and um, and really, you know, I don't know how interesting to other people, but very interesting to me, just how it came about, um... In 2012, uh, late spring, early summer, and my brother, who runs Revenant Records, his name named Dean Blackwood, is is really the, the visionary for this mm. whole thing, and along with Jack White, they, um, he wanted to pitch Jack White on this idea of bringing into prominence uh, a record label called Paramount Records, which has nothing to do with the fund company in fact, was sued by the film company <laughs> years ago for oh, the man. use of their name, uh, even though they predate it. They
2: predate
1: mm. the film. Um, but it was, you know, the first uh, great race record company. And um, it's, you know, it, it's a company that is, uh, had ties to Chicago because they did all the recording in downtown Chicago in the loop. At mm. uh, least the first... Uh, three-quarters of the, the time they were in existence. Um, and they had ties to the small town in uh, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, just north of Milwaukee. And uh, they uh, really revolutionized um, modern music. I mean, there's no there's no way around it. They they were the central recording company that changed everything um, by accident.
2: Yeah. The intent was
1: not to... Uh, rewrite uh, culture they were only, you know, after a buck uh, and they inadvertently recorded the greats of the 20th century uh, in jazz and blues Mm. and so he approached me with this idea he said, you know, this story hasn't been told it's been, you know, there's this great researcher researcher Alexander took he's done some amazing work and he has a book on this, it's more of a scholarly book about the history Um, and he said, I want you to write a kind of novelistic Mary would, uh, would you be willing to do this and I said oh no I, you know, there's no way I'm in the middle of this novel see how small and my god I, I don't know where I'm going to go with, I'm not even sure I'm literally in the middle of see how small I want to but stupidly stupidly I took it on anyway <laughs> as another project where, you know uh, but it, it kind of um, it kind of, you know, in Texas, there's you know a phrase called putting uh, uh, a bug in your ear, and what, what it is is you know you you are nudged along mm. or um, kind of irritated uh, slightly with a message. Yeah. Uh, it's an old phrase, and, and that's what it did. It said you really need to do this, and, yeah. and you need to work especially hard on your your novel simultaneously, and somehow one will feed the other. Yeah. And I think that's actually what happened. And Jack White was thrilled with the proposal. He added, he's a design expert. He used to, he used to reupholster furniture and design oh, wow. furniture. So he, just, <laughs> he, he helped design the first box. And mm. He designed all the white striped album covers. So he has this great design element. And I was brought in, you know, to tell the story. Mm. And so, um, you know, I, I didn't know where I was going initially. But, uh, but I found... Uh, you know, and all writers look for that uh, kind of overarching thematic structure uh, or thematic um, um, you know, kind of beacon that yeah. you know, towards And for this, I was able to kind of realize that well, I'm, across my work I'm dealing with these ghost voices,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, or lost voices mm-hmm. in this case. And, and and I think that the the fact that I was dealing with the girls and, and the lost voices of, um, you know, the people in the crime, um, also informed the writing about people who were long gone, um, people like Ma Rainey and Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it played such an important part in the Paramount story. Um, an idea was to bring them to full body life, to get at their essence and who they were, and dramatize that while at the same time telling the larger Paramount story, which. Again, as a just you know, an American story in a large sense because um, it's after one thing and gets another, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's to me wholly American. And mm-hmm. it's also about uh, you know, those voices are, I think, uh, also, I don't know, if, certainly not uniquely American, but uh, play a big part, you know, in the early part of our literature, especially mm-hmm. you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne and going into the woods and meeting uh, essentially the rec- repressed parts of themselves that are having uh, a, uh, you know, witch's coven in the in the woods in mm. Hampshire.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and the whole idea of this kind of this thing behind the surface, or underneath the surface, the aquifer, you know, life, like, percolates. Regardless of how you try to tamp it down, yeah. and um, and that's that became you know a central theme all the way through. So, yeah, and, and you know the, the Grammy nomination is just astounding. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and that the book was nominated separately. Uh, my brother Dean and Jack and uh, Susan Archie, the, the designers and and you know, visionaries for this, get also a nomination. So we're all going out there. Uh, I'm just so thrilled that someone recognized writing in a music world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Unusual. So, um, you know, I just feel really lucky that they singled it out, and we'll see how things go.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's going to be a good (laughs) year either either way. Yeah. Um, So, before I take up too much of your time, uh, just one final question, uh, which I just always find very fascinating what answers come out. Uh, So, which book do you wish you'd written?
1: 100 Years of Solitude, I think if I had to narrow it down, it would be that book. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, to me, that combines everything I'm interested in, the sense of the prophetic or prophecy that is is kind of, it's about the marvelous. It's about um, a sense of wonder. And to me, that's, that's what we're all striving for, is how to invest or reinvest the world, you know, with with wonder, Mm -hmm. um, making the little goldfishes, the the fish that, uh, the the Bundia family legacy, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: the little goldfish, and, and, um, you know, just this this sense of (laughs) rediscovering ice Mm and the largest diamond in the world. You know, I'll never forget those details, and and, um, I just think it's it's an astounding book at every level yeah
0: uh, if I could ever write anything like that uh, I could die happily yeah. <laughs> well, I think see how small suddenly you know has the transcendence and is yeah i mean congratulations again, it's a really really quite a special book um and it's been an absolute okay. pleasure to talk to you about it yeah well, you yeah, know I'm just I, it's so weird you know
1: for so many years you have something stuck in your head and and no one's was reading it. Or, well, no, my 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 spouse, the wonderful Tommy Ferguson, had been reading it in increments and giving me feedback mm-hmm. you know, to uh My first reader always, and uh, but uh, and, and some friends. But other than that, uh, you know, it just stuck. And, and to have it read by people in New Zealand, Australia, yeah. and Australia, in the UK in general, you know, is to me an amazing thing. You mm-hmm. know.
0: See How Small is available from Fourth Estate in hardback, ebook, and downloadable audio. For our other podcasts and much more, please visit www.fourthestate.co.uk. That's where the number. Thank you for listening.